So uh, Mike and Pam Rizell have been friends uh, with, with Michelle and I for over 20 years. Uh, we absolutely love these folks. And God has given them a message that they have taken literally around the world. They've given this presentation 4,000 times. And um, every time they give this presentation, it's as though it's the first time they've done it. And for them, it's the same way because it's such a special message to them and it's touched their lives so deeply that when they present it, and for all of you, for many of you, it'd be the first time you've seen it. It is, it is so compelling and so touching. Um, and, and I don't even want to try to describe what's going to, about to take place. It'll be visual, audio. It's everything. It's going to hit all your senses. Mike even throws clay at people. Uh, no, I'm kidding. He doesn't. He doesn't. But um, they have been our dear friends. God has used them mightily, and we're so blessed to have them here, especially at Christmas time. It's a great gift to the congregation. I love these two. Are you guys ready to roll? Let's w- welcome Mike and Pam Rizell. Love you, buddy. 21 years. 21 years. You know, that's the real beauty of what we do is we get to do it with people we love to do it with. And um, we love Pastor Rob and Michelle. And um, they're part of our tribe and we're part of theirs. How many of you brought a Bible? Well, first of all, Merry Christmas. And uh, that's the first thing I wanted to say. And the other thing is, is I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How many brought a Bible? Wow, good. Um, Listen, um, keep it shut. I just wanted to know if you brought your Bible. It's always one of those questions why I'm still searching. It can, you know, kind of stall. Okay, Uh, you don't need to open your Bible. And by the way, if you are visiting, you're never going to hear that at God speak. (laughs) Uh, Because the the word of God is taught here, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But this morning, you don't need to open your Bible because you're actually going to walk into your Bible. You're going to walk into the 18th chapter, uh, the first verse of the book of Jeremiah. I want you to listen very carefully because... Throughout this message, I'm going to be weaving back and forth to this, uh, this, these verses. So just remember as I share this, and I'll be able to come back to them. Um, but Jeremiah 18.1, let me read it to you, and then we'll dive into this morning's message. Arise and go down to the potter's house, for there I'm going to give you my message, wrote Jeremiah. So I went down to the potter's house, and I watched the potter work on the potter's wheel. Now, the pot that the potter was shaping from clay, it became broken or marred in the potter's hand. So he, the potter, formed it into another vessel that seemed better to him than the first one that he was making. And then the message came to me, wrote Jeremiah, O house of Israel, can I not do to you what the potter has just done to the clay, declares the Lord or promises the Lord Like clay is in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. O house of Israel. The word Israel, the meaning of it, or the translation, is governed or ruled by God. Governed or ruled by God. That is an important part of this morning's message. Because when Jeremiah walked into the potter's house, it was God, if you will, just for a moment, um, uh, uh, if you consider that God wanted Jeremiah and he wanted you and I to know the relationship that he desires to have with man, he was going to give us a physical demonstration of what that looks like. So he says, Jeremiah, here's the deal. Go on down to the potter's house. I want you to watch this guy. He's going to be working on the wheel. And the pot that he's going to make, I want you to see it. 
Because you're going to think he's going to be doing something, he's going to do something else. And then I want you to realize, that's what I want to do to you, because I govern your life. Like clay is in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands. Well, house of Israel. House of Israel, Israel, translation, governed by God. Here's the deal. We are not born into a life that is governed or ruled by God. We're born into life that is separate from God. Sin is what separates man from God. Sin separates man from God. Now, right about now, in the group this size, someone might be thinking, well, Mike, I've like never sinned. Okay, well, then you just lied and lying to sin, so you need a savior and we'll get to that later. But here's the point. We've all sinned. Now, my life did not become governed by God until August 2nd, 1991. I was 31 years old. On that day, without question, I know that I know that I know that God chose me, picked me up, and he set me on the rock, his son, Jesus Christ. This is where the potter works, right here on the wheel. I met God at 31 years old. In a great desperation and need for God, God provided himself, his son. I don't know how to tell you what happened that day, except it was spiritual. It far transcends anything I'm capable of describing to you. But that day, on that moment and that time, 24 years later, I can tell you that day that God saved my soul. That's a fact. 24 years later, I can testify to that. Now, up to that point, I didn't know God, wasn't governed by God. As a matter of fact, let me say this. I come from four generations of heathen, filthy dog pigs. I wasn't, I mean, it was generational for me, man. We didn't know God. You know, uh, I was messed up. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Now, please know that just because I grew up, it's not saying that everybody in Southern California is, you know, heathen, filthy dog pigs. But I grew up in this environment, and uh, Pam and I travel all over. And when I say I grew up in California, everybody starts laughing. Ah, you know. I don't mean it that way. Uh, My wife, though, she grew up in Georgia, grew up in the South, grew up in church. (laughs) She actually doesn't know a time in her life that she wasn't in church on Sunday morning. Uh, she, uh, but she knows the time she gave her heart to the Lord. She's an 11-year-old girl. Came up out of a pew. Pastor invited people to come forward to receive Christ. 11-year-old girl opens up her heart, receives Christ as their Savior. She shared her faith publicly for the first time. She is 17. Local beauty pageant. Thousands of people. Miss Thomasville, Georgia. <laughs> and she won. She went to Miss Georgia. And she won. She went to Miss America. Finished in the top 50. Got a degree in journalism from the University of South Carolina, but it was on her way after she graduated from college, she went to New York. And because Pam had this desire, this passion of her life, uh, that it, she always wanted to be in a musical, Broadway musical. So she moves to New York, gets an apartment, starts going on auditions. And uh, I'm sharing this all for a reason. Uh, at a uh, cast uh, almost immediately when she moved to New York in the Broadway musical 42nd Street. And she's done from the chorus to the actual starring role, Dorothy Brock. I tell you all of this for this reason. At a very early age, my wife experienced a great level of worldly success. She got the full deal up front. Early 20s, doing everything that she ever wanted to do, passionate about, and they paid her a ridiculous amount of money. But it was also there that she started to, what the Bible refers to for a believer, is to backslide. She started to move away from the convictions of her heart. She started, if you will, turning down the volume of her conscience. She started to question the words of this book. In a very subtle way, she starts to 
Com- backslide, compromise. Now, the Bible says that bad company corrupts good character. There were some people in her life that were drawing her away. She was making some free decisions. Little bits of compromise, compromise. And I say this to you, too. It wasn't like one decision. She didn't just get up on a Friday morning and go, hey, it's Pam. You want to backslide with me this weekend? No, it's not like that. Compromise, 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 compromise. Little bits of compromise, 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 compromise. Now, over seven years, she's now so far away from the Lord, and this is where she met me. Now, when I met Pam, she was actually so far away from the Lord, she was practicing an Eastern religion. I'd watch her in her time of worship, you know, and she'd light this incense, put these beads on her hand, you know, these like things on her finger, ching, ching. And she would, I'd sit back and watch, you know, like, what is that? And she'd be like, ringy, dummy, dingy, rummy, rummy. And she'd start this ringy, dingy, rummy. And I'm going, what in the world is that? I'm going, man, I don't know what's right, but that's wrong, man. You better stop that. You know, it just, I was very confused about this, but she was really into it. And anyways, we met and three weeks later, we did something we recommend to absolutely nobody. We went to Las Vegas and got married. Okay, don't ever do that. That's really bad. Uh, But four nights after we got married, she runs back to church for the very first time in seven years because she just married Satan. Okay? She's like, oh my, this is the devil's kid. I gotta get back to church. I gotta run back. So she goes to the church called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and there's Pastor Chuck. Uh, Yeah, August, uh, no, excuse me, uh, September 30th, 1987. And the message on why grace changes everything. That night, my, I, I'm, watch, I'm there. Pam and I are there. We're hanging on by a thread. And we've only been married four days. Okay, So four days, hanging on by a thread. Um, and I'm in church for the first time in my life. And all of a sudden, this man starts teaching on why grace changes everything. O wretched man am I who's rescued me from this body of death, but praise be to God, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he runs to the age of, uh, you know, shows with us how Paul in Romans 7, then get to the age. Now there is no guilt or no condemnation. At the end of services, we're praying. He invited people up who needed prayer. And all of a sudden, man, right next to me, she's gone. She comes back afterwards. I, go, I, I mean, I don't even know how to tell you this. The woman that I married four days earlier, she comes back. She goes, Mike, I'm born again. And I'm like, are you still Miss Georgia? Like, what, what is that? What, what's, what, what? I don't know. What, it sounds wrong. You know, I don't know. And so I started going to church, and it just, everything was different. She was different. So I'd go to church, and, you know, I got a Bible, I, Seemed appropriate. Got a fish on my bumper. Seemed appropriate, you know. And so now I'm in church for three and a half years, and uh, I have Jesus in my life, I guess. But he's not my life, and truly doesn't govern my life. That happened on August 2nd, 91. Now, Pam and I, we moved to South Florida. We were both in this upward momentum in our careers. She now is a headline entertainer on seven of the major cruise lines. And I've accepted a position as a regional marketing director for a Wall Street firm. So we got the four-bedroom home, the Porsche, the Mercedes, the the Rolexes, the closet full of Italians, you know. Suits, not people. But, you know, (laughs) we... But as we get to South Florida, Pam starts growing in the Lord, picks up where she left off, and I'm playing with God, picking up where I left off. 
And after being in Florida for a year, I got invited to have breakfast with one of the elders. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm so spiritually prideful, I think they're going to make me an elder. <laughs> and that's a message I got to bring some other time. But uh, this, this gentleman asked me, Jeff asked me, hey, can I have breakfast with you? And I said, sure. So I go, hey, Pam, I'm going to have breakfast with Jeff. I think they're going to make me an elder. She's like, I don't think so, but you need to go, you know, I mean. So I go and have breakfast, sit down, and the guy looks me in the eye, and he's still a dear friend of mine today. And he looks at me, and he says, Mike, have I loved you as a brother in the Lord? And I said, yeah, I believe you have. He said, um, can I share something with you? And I said, sure. He said, you're probably not going to like me much after breakfast. I said, why? He said, well, the Lord's laid something on my heart. I want to share it with you. I said, okay. He said, you're a phony. You play with God, and you wear a mask. And you know it, I know it, and God knows it. And your wife told my wife. <laughs> so I'm driving home, gang, and I'm like really mad. Like, pull the hunkin' redwood out of your own eye, bro. You can't talk to me that way. I'm an usher, and I got a badge. You know, I'm going through my list of why. <laughs> but what was happening was there were some issues in my life that were, they were manifesting themselves in complete and absolute. I was out of control. And uh, my marriage, I had destroyed my marriage to Pamela. I had destroyed most of my relationships uh, in the past. And um, uh, I had this thought and this revelation. I don't really share this very much, but I come out of a, not only did I come out of a broken home. My parents were divorced three months after I was born. But um, my father and I never really had much of a relationship, but he ended up having four different marriages. And what hit me on my way home was that I was going to lose the woman that I love more than anything else. But more than that, I had this incredible thought that I was going to end up like my dad if I didn't take what God was trying to show me today seriously. I really got, God brought me to this incredible place of decision. And all I can tell you is I was driving home my heart started to. Didn't matter about the, you know, the black Mercedes with Palomino interior. Didn't matter that I was in Armani and I had Rolex, ballet shoes, Halliburton briefcase, Mont Blanc pin. Something was happening in my heart. This is a piece of clay that's had no water on it for one day. Blessed is a man who always fears God, but he who hardens his heart from God is a man who's ready to fall into trouble. Proverbs 28, 14. You won't find that on ice boxes. Here's a promise from God. Harden your heart from me, and you're going to fall into trouble because I love you enough, because when you fall into trouble and you're despair, you'll cry out to me, and I'll be there. I happen to be one of those guys that just wouldn't yield a rock from heaven had to fall on me. Circumstantial brokenness, God has no problem using it. Prefer not to. I recommend not to. But if you choose not to, the blow. And the blow came on August 2nd, 91. Boom! I opened the door to my house, and I'm down in conviction, wailing. Oh, God, Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. Oh, God, I've been playing with you for three and a half years. No, God. Oh, God, can you forgive me? Oh, God, can you forgive me?
I already did, Mikey. All your sin, past, present, future is on my son. Not guilty. White as snow. Twenty some years I've been doing that. And this still happens in my eyes every time I see it. And this is just food coloring. Because it reminds me that there is a cross involved for the fact that I'm going to heaven. And that cross was brutal. It was brutal. And he did it for me and he did it for you. And he says this today. It's not what you can do for me that matters. I just long for all of my children to respond to what I did for them. And if you will, I'll give you life this side of heaven, then heaven. It's not like a bad deal. It's a great deal. The plans I have for you in Romans 12 says, here's the plans God has for us. Good and perfect. Okay, Lord, what is it that you have for us? Good and perfect. Good and perfect. And yet, I was accepting this when I could have had this. I'm here today, and I don't look out in this room and see anything. I don't see the clay. I see the way and the manner of which God sees you. Finished. I want to be an inspiration to each and every one of you, the same way that God put people in my life to inspire me, encourage me, to be all that the potter would have me to be. Like clay is in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands. Look, this is eight and a half pounds of clay. I made this vessel from this, and you can't make this from this unless you see this first. He saw each and every one of us, designed each and every one of us, has a plan for each and every one of us. Bible says that he created us, designed us, filled us, and he's the one that uses us. And yet for 31 years of my life, I'm like that piece of clay that goes, let me tell you what I think. I don't even believe there is a God. I did that. It's funny, but we should cry. Can you imagine if I walked in my studio, which are hundreds of pots right now, when I get home tomorrow in Montana, and I get in my studio, and all my pots are going, hey, who do you think is the greatest amongst us? I'm like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Whoa. You see, that's what I was doing. Bible says for a man who doesn't believe in God, Bible uses one word. I love it, fool. Listen, you guys haven't even saw me work today. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. I'm going to take this 50 pounds of clay, and I'm going to work with it. And I'm going to tell you about this clay. This clay doesn't want me to. This clay is mad. I don't know what it is, but when I start to work with it, this clay is going to go, no, 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 no. And after Pam's done with the song that I'm going to tell you about in a minute, I'm going to end up centering this piece of clay. It's going to be mine. Why? Because it's my, I'm the potter. The clay doesn't tell me what I'm going to do with it. I'm the potter. So I'm going to mold and shape this piece of clay what I know it's going to be. And it's going to be so grateful that I do. Okay. I'm going to do this, and I'm telling you I'm doing it, and then I'm going to make it, and then I'm going to mar it, and then I'm going to make it into something else. And even when I tell you I'm going to mar it, you're all going to gasp when I do because you'll forget that I even told you. But I'm going to, and then I'm going to make it into what I already know it's going to be, and I'm telling you before I ever do it, at the end of the service, if any one of you would walk into me and go, hey, I don't think you're a potter, that would be foolish, right? Yeah. That's what happens every time we look in the mirror. And say there is no God. Today God says, no, I'm God. 
And I'm real. My son died, and he rose on the third day. Take the sting of death away, and I got heaven, this side of heaven, then I'm going to throw heaven in. I'll put meaning, purpose, and passion, and emotion in your life and drive a relationship. I didn't believe any of that. I'm 31 years old. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. God provides one in his son, Jesus Christ. I'm born again. Sets me free from an alcohol addiction, drug addiction. I knew that day that I'd be as sober as I am today. I don't know how. I don't know why, but God did. I got my keys, drove down to the church, went into my pastor's office, said, Pastor Bob, he goes, hey, Mikey. I said, I've been a phony for three and a half years. He's like, yeah, no kidding. I said, did you know? He goes, everybody knows that about you. You know, they're fruit inspectors. They weren't judging me. They just saw my life. Wasn't hiding anything. And I, I go, what do I do? He goes, you better go find Pam. I went found Pam. I said, Pam, I'm a rotten husband. Jesus forgiven me, will you? She said, maybe. But there, <laughs> there was something that I just did not believe, that God had a plan for my life and that I was valued and I was special. You see, I was a victim growing up as a young boy. I'm going to tell you that. But there was a time in my life I needed to stop being a victim. I was raised in a home on October 8th, 1959. I was born. By Christmas of that year, my... Parents were divorced. We moved in with my grandparents. In the late 50s, early 60s, this was one unheard of. This was not a normal family unit like it is today. Divorce was not prevalent. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. Living with two women. Because my grandfather, when I was five on Thanksgiving Day, died at 50 years old. Before he hit the ground, he was dead. Massive heart attack at 50. Being raised by these two women who actually had no idea what they were doing. And I grew up with this rejection and abandonment, and I never had a sense of anyone really caring or inspiring or encouraging for me to be all that God would have me to be or anybody. So now I'm 31, I'm born again, and God's going, hey, i got a plan for your life. And I'm basically all those wires that got disconnected in my formative years. God is trying to rewire me, all my stinking thinking. He's trying to rewire me in the way and the manner of which he sees me. And then there was something I never forgot from Pastor Chuck in those years at Costa Mesa. God's will for man's life is in his word. God's will for you is in the Bible. And one day God sent me a postcard out of the Bible that told me how God saw me, and I believed it. Right after I got saved, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, Mikey, I knew you. I added the Mikey, but before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you before you were ever born, I set you apart. God wanted me to know and redo what I was thinking with God. It didn't matter to anything or anybody. I surely didn't matter to God. God goes on the contrary. That's a lie from the, from the pit. I see you differently. I see you, and I've always seen you since the foundations of the earth. I've known every day of your life, and I've written them down before one ever came to be. I took your mother's egg, the largest cell in the human body, Mikey. One of four cells you can actually see with the naked eye. I took one drop of your dad's sperma, which I could have populated planet Earth with two billion human beings at the time of your conception alone, but I called you by name. I'm God and I don't make mistakes. Wrapped in water, tied to a cord, feeding on your mother's body, I knitted together 100 million receptors in your eyes. So you'd be able to see 26,000 fibers in each one of your ears. So you can hear your heart's going to pump 34 million times a year your blood through 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and tubing, 206 bones, 500 muscles going to allow you to walk. When it formed your brain, three pounds of brain mass, 13 billion nerve cells, allows you to recall everything you've ever tasted, done, or smelled. You're the most complicated combination of molecules ever to be set in motion, mankind. We'll never be able to comprehend what I do over a period of nine months, wrapped in water, tied to court, feeding on the mother's body. And yet, you always thought you were a self-made man. <laughs> what part did you make, Mike? You see, God has designed and created me, and he's designed and created you. 
to put that passion, that emotion, that purpose, and that plan. But it's got to be heavenly minded, not temporal and secular pursuit. See, that's what Madison Avenue gets you and I to do. And they burn candles all night long. (sighs) My heart was so hard and then it was broken. And it was filled with this forgiveness and filled with this hunger. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what Pam was going to do with it. And Pam went to the Lord. She said, Lord, thank you for answering prayers that I've had for my husband, but Lord, I've never considered that it would ever end up where he would actually receive that forgiveness and get to desire you. And now, Lord, I'd be put in a position that I was going to have to forgive him. And Lord, I believe I forgive him. I just don't like him. Lord, I don't have nothing to do with him. I'm indifferent. Lord, would you forgive me? And Lord, would you soften my heart towards him? Would you soften my heart? Would you? Could you? Would you? You know what the Lord did? He softened Pam's heart. She wrote a song titled Soften My Heart. But let me ask you something. No, I'm going to preach this one. Anytime you move towards reconciliation, you really don't have to ask if God's in it as much as you have to ask, is this the time for it? But he's always in it because he gives the spirit of reconciliation. Pam asked God to soften her heart. And you know what? He did. (laughs) Not only has Pam forgiven me, God has helped Pam forget what she was mad about. She's going to sing this song for you. I'm going to make and mold and shape this pot. Watch what happens when the clay yields to the master's touch. Watch.
ago, Michael and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary. God is indeed a God of miracles. It's also amazing to me how he took two people that couldn't stand each other at one time, and he remolded us and he reshaped us back into one flesh centered on Jesus. We don't have a perfect marriage. I don't want to give anybody that impression in here, but we have a marriage today that's centered on Jesus Christ, and that's the biggest difference than what it was 28 years ago. Michael wanted me to share with you this morning what was happening in our marriage, because if it'll help one of you in here, then it was worth all of the pain and all of the heartache that he and I have had to go through as a couple in order to offer you hope here this morning. For the first seven years of our marriage, about every two weeks or so, Michael and I would have what I refer to as these major confrontations in our marriage. We'd have horrible fights with one another, and we would verbally abuse each other. Now, we both have type A personalities, so we don't sugarcoat anything. We go right for the jugular vein. <laughs> so only the Lord could go back in there and heal the wounds that he and I inflicted upon each other's hearts with our words. But during these fights, Michael would cross the line of anger verbally. He would then proceed to step over that line into rage. Michael would rage on me. I was always the brunt of his rage. But I knew in my heart I wasn't the cause of it. And I knew, I knew the Lord wanted to reveal to him what the cause of this deep-seated anger was in his heart. 
So I started praying for him. I got my girlfriends together. They were my prayer warriors, and they started praying too. And the work began not only in his heart, but actually began deep in my heart first. If you watch his hand this morning going away deep in the center of this pot, it's going to be a very deep process. What he's actually going to do, he's going to take his hand all the way to the bottom, and he's going to start to scoop the gunk out of the center of that pot. Do you know why? Because it's still full of itself. We have to give Jesus permission to go deep into the hidden chambers of our own individual hearts to reveal our own personal gunk. And if we ask him to, he'll be so faithful to shine that Holy Spirit searchlight deep within our hearts. He'll start to show us the things that don't bring him glory. And if we confess our sins to him, and if we repent, which simply means to turn around and go in the opposite direction than what we were going before, he'll be so faithful to start scooping that gunk out of our hearts. He'll take it out piece by piece. He'll cover our sins with his blood. He'll take our sins as far as east is to west, and he will never, ever bring them up again. That's the wonderful God that we serve. The Lord started revealing to me the ugliness in my heart. And he said to me one day in that still, small voice, he said, Pam, you know and I know you're harboring hatred in your heart towards Michael. This doesn't bring me glory. Will you surrender this sin today at the foot of my cross, my daughter? Pam, you're harboring bitterness and resentment and holding on unforgiveness deep inside towards Michael and others, and this doesn't bring me glory either. Will you surrender this sin at my feet? Pam, you hold grudges against Michael. This is not a Christ-like characteristic, but if you allow me to, I'll chisel in its place a Christ-like characteristic. Will it be painful, Lord? Yes, it will. Will it be worth it, Lord? It will, my daughter. Pam, you're critical of Michael. You're critical of other people I've made in my image. Would you surrender this sin today at the foot of my cross? These are just a few of the many things that the Lord started revealing to me about the ugliness in my heart. But there's a wonderful promise in the Bible. It's in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, being confident of this, he who began a good work is faithful to see it through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not through with me yet. He's not through with one of you yet either. And I stand on that promise every day of my walk with the Lord, that what he started in us, he promises to finish it one day. Now, the first time Michael and I ever did what you're seeing here this morning as a Pottersville presentation was 23 years ago. First time we did this at our home church, it was 22 years ago. And unbeknownst to us that morning in the service were the marriage counselors. We didn't know it then, but boy, did we find out later on. We found out Connie turned to her husband, John, in the middle of the service because the Lord had shown her something about us in the spirit. So she turned to him and said, John, he's a very angry man. We need to pray for the two of them. She didn't see this ministry again until three and a half years later after making that comment, and she was so excited at the conclusion of it. She came running down the center aisle, and she had tears rolling down her face, and she said, Pam, what has happened to Michael? The anger that was so prevalent in his face, it's no longer there. I can actually see the love of Jesus shining through his eyes. You have to tell me what the Lord's done in your lives. And I said, Connie, it's a miracle of God because I thought I'd have to live with this anger the rest of my married life. But the Lord's gone deep into his heart. He's revealed to him the root causes of his anger, which are, number one, rejection issues he deals with every day of his life. Number two, abandonment issues. Number three, issues of neglect. And as the Lord is continuing to reveal things to him every day, it's kind of like peeling back that proverbial onion peel piece by piece, and he's giving him revelation, but he's healing him. 
every step of the way as he goes. I'm watching this man of God unfold from very eyes. She said, I knew the Lord had done a miracle, Pam, because I could see it. But then she said something to me I'm never going to forget. She said, Pam, just think. If you had left Michael so many years ago, like you so desperately wanted out of your marriage, do you realize you wouldn't have waited long enough to see what the Lord had in store for the two of you? He had a ministry prepared for you two, and he was going to call it Potter's Field. And one day he would use that ministry all over the globe to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, and to be instruments of healing for broken marriages for such a time as this. As you see, Michael's taking this worthless lump of clay. He's making it into a vessel of honor and value and utility, one that's going to be usable in the Master Potter's hands. When I think back on how bad our marriage was in the beginning, I used to cry out on my face to the Lord and I prayed and I give me a godly man. And when he would be sleeping at night, I'd go in, I would lay my hands on him while he was asleep, and I'd pray for him. And I'd say, Lord, please change him, make him into a godly man. And when I look over here this morning and I see what the Lord has done in the life of a man who has yielded himself at the master potter's feet. It's a miracle of God. He wants to do that exact same work in each and every heart in this room here this morning. But it takes a willingness and a desire on your part. You have to give him your whole heart, not just pieces of it. I have a supernatural love today for my And then only God could have given me to take that hatred and that bitterness out. To fill it back up with his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. His amazing grace. Today, Michael's an ordained pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know it's because of the prayers of many, many saints who prayed for us through the years. And because of God's abundant grace and mercy that he decided one day just to pour out on two ordinary people that decided to trust him with everything that we were and everything we hope to become together in the future. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That word workmanship in the original, original language is poema, and it means masterpiece. We're his masterpieces. or his priceless works of art. My prayer for you this morning is that you will yield to the Holy Spirit of a living God to become everything he's intended you to become before the foundations of the earth. Amen.
Man looks at the outward, but I, your God, I examine the heart of man. You see, Samuel, I don't look at the outward. I I, I see the heart. The heart. Gang, the Lord saw the stuff and all the things that I was doing to cover up instead of leveraging up and bringing it into the light. And he loved me enough to expose a lot of the stuff in darkness. The gunk, the pain, the hurt, the rejection, the abandonment, all those things that were hindering 
freedom. And the freedom that I needed was truth. Truth. I started unpacking some of this, these regions. And let me tell you about the anger that Pam talks about. It's not anger as most people are angry. It was rage. This is a crossing of the line and getting to a place you can't get back. It's, it's, there's people that get mad when someone cuts them off, and there's other people that will follow them off the on-ramp with a loaded nine Glock. Okay. I didn't have a nine Glock and didn't shoot anybody. Let me just tell you that. But that's... Rage. Okay. There was a lot of hurt and pain. Emotional, physical, verbal, and sexual abuse growing up. And, and so now I'm born again and I, I need to unpack some of this stuff. I'm stuck. So I'm with a pastor and a dear friend of mine and um, he was a pastor's pastor and an older gentleman on staff, and um, he was spending some time with me. And, and, and this, please, did not happen overnight, but it, I'm going to give you the gist of it. Uh, he looked at me and he said, you know what, Mike, you and I are never going to, I'm not going to be able to help you until you and I can be united. And the only thing that's going to unite us is the word of God. So we have to agree that, you know what, I really believe I can help you walk out of this, what you call this place where you're stuck but it's going to be through God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we in agreement? And I said, yes. He said, I want you to go home this weekend and I want you to camp out in John's gospel, the fifth chapter, and then come back next week and we'll talk about it and we'll look to God's word. And basically, the John's gospel, the fifth chapter, um, you guys will see it when you go to Israel. I saw that you're going to Israel. It's the healing pools of Bethesda. It's these healing pools. And theory goes, angel come down from heaven, okay, trouble the water. And the very first one that made it into one of these pools was healed. So these pe- pools were surrounded by people with emotional and physical ailments. And they saw with firsthand accounts that people were getting healed. So you can imagine these pools are surrounded by people waiting to get their opportunity, right? So here's how it starts. Jesus walks up to this man. Oh, and a little bit later on into this uh, John's gospel, this fifth chapter, it says that the man that Jesus is talking to doesn't know who the Lord is. This is huge. Here's why. This guy's going to have a conversation with God in sandals and doesn't know it. Okay, this is really good. So Jesus walks up to this man, pulled Bethesda and says, do you want to be healed? And the man looks up to him and says, I've been here for 38 years. Like almost like, Really? Uh, I mean, I mean, you can observe. I've been here for 38 years. I have no friends. He says, I have no friends to help me into the pool. And by the time I get down in the pool, he might have said, yeah, of course I do. But I don't know. I don't, I don't have any friends. I have no way to get down in the pool. And, you know, he starts telling him his story. And I tell you, the moment I read this, the Lord speaks to me and says, you're this man, Mikey. I said, Lord, how am I this man? He said, two reasons. One, you don't answer the question. And two, you proceed to tell me why you can't be healed. You tell me your story as if I don't know your story. And it always starts that your dad left when you were three months old. You moved in with your grandparents. Your grandfather died when you were five. No one was at your Little League games. No one was there to prepare meals for you, take care of your clothes, nurture you, encourage you, inspire you. And I just have this same rap. But Lord, this is what happened to my life. Because I know. I know. But how is it working for you to hang on to it? Lord, it's not. Then pick your mat up and walk. Let it go. Let it go. It's weight. It's cancer. It's spiritual cancer. 
Press on to what I have for you, Mike. I have a future of hope. Let it go. Like Pam, let it go. Like others have let it go. Let it go. So as I'm telling Pam, and I said, Lord, he's asked me, do you want to be healed? And Pam goes, well, do you? Well, yeah. And as she prayed over me in her lap, she starts praying in a prayer language. She anoints me with oil and... should see all your faces right now. <laughs> the pot becomes marred in the potter's hands and the potter does something. He molds and shapes into a vessel that he was going to make before the first one. See, all of you thought I was going to make a base today and I've always been making a bowl. Can I not do to you what you do in your pottery studio every time you go up there, Mike? Like clay is in your hand, so are you in my hand. Do you believe it? You see, Mike, you're a potter, but you're not the potter. You're like clay in the potter's hand. Our relationship changes today. You were molded and shaped from the same 13 elements that make up common topsoil. But long before you had fifth grade science with Mr. Levins, I wrote it in the Bible, I formed man from the dust of the ground. I knew what the makeup of your physical body was long before science did, and the fact of it is, you're dirt. <laughs> I got a plan for your life. When I told Jeremiah to go in the potter's house, it wasn't a white piece of clay, black piece of clay, Hispanic piece of clay, Asian piece of clay, it was a piece of clay. It wasn't rich, it wasn't broke, it wasn't smart, it wasn't not so smart. It wasn't Baptist, Independent, or Southern. It wasn't Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Calvary Chapel, nor Catholic. I don't recognize man's division. I just want to know who governs your life, and I desire to. We have been designed by God in our fiber to worship. You will worship him, or you will worship something. And he alone is worthy of our worship. Four months after Pam and I got radically saved. And I mean, I got radically saved. I don't even know what that means. I just got radically saved. <laughs> I went under the piano. God set me free from some things that needed to be set free from. He's still working on some today that I just, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I will tell you what he did do more than anything else is he gave us a passion, a desire for something other than where we were headed. And in October of 91, there was a message about, and it hit home with us because we were stuck. You know, again, I've got this career moving up in it too, and we're getting ready to launch this product, which Today, they're making movies about, but I was part of the forefront of what we know today as mortgage-backed securities. And we were nine of us were raising a boatload of money, and I knew that the money that was coming in was setting a foundation because we started to loan it out, and we loaned it out with people that couldn't pay it back. And I thought it would be over with in three years, and it went on for 18. But I will tell you, I saw this happen a long time ago, so I had great conviction, a part of this. Plus, I didn't have the desire to do it because you have to do it to get stuff. I would have had some stuff. So as I'm born again and I'm moving in this direction, I'm meeting with my pastor, telling him about what's going on in my workplace, but I also tell him about this opportunity that we had when we came to the altar that night. Pam came with me when he invited people to come to Christians to surrender their lives to the purpose and plan that God had for his world and our part in it. Pam and I had one of those, aha, this is God's world. We are here for a time such as this. Every tombstone I've ever seen has a birthday, the day the person dies, and a one-inch dash. That's why we're here. That's the long length of our time here. The dates change, but the dash is the same. Lord, I don't get to go wherever I want to go and take you with me. I need to stop, take a deep breath, and seek you and desire what your plan is. 
Yes. That night, Pam and I, with others, we grabbed each other by the hand and we came forward and we committed that as a couple, individually. Lord, our lives, our careers, our time, our talent, our treasure, whatever it is, Lord, if you want to stay in the field that you want us to, that we're in, then we'll so be it. But Lord, if you want to change it, please, we're open to that too. That's kind of what it was. And all these people came to the altar that night. It was radical for our church. And I remember Bob going, wow, I didn't know this trip. Okay, Lord, here's what I know. We're in mission. That's what happened tonight. It's radical. Lord, we're going to go right back to the place we went to today. But next year, Lord, something might happen in all of our lives. Something, Lord, and we're open to it. And we mean it. Until the whole world hears. That's how we ended the prayer. Until the whole world hears. In Jesus' name, amen. We went back to our seat. Pam and I went back and just went, wow. A week later, I'm meeting with Bob. I'm downloading him my stuff. And he goes, well, hold on. So you want to leave your field? I go, I do. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I have to make X amount of money just to wake up in the morning. He goes, well, how about if you didn't have to worry about money? I said, well, I do. He said, well, just stop for right now. Can we have a conversation that doesn't have to do with money? Okay. What would you do? Do you know what you'd do? I said, I do. He says, you know what you'd do? I go, yeah, I love doing it. He goes, what would you do? I said, I'd be a potter, Bob. <laughs> you mean on a wheel with clay? I go, yeah. He goes, do you know how to do it? I said, I'm really good at it. He said, do it, man. Are you kidding me? That's the Lord. I said, how can you say it's the Lord? He goes, I've never had anybody say, I want to be a potter, Bob. It's got to be the Lord. <laughs> I go, you can't give that kind of counsel. He goes, yeah, I can. I go, how do you do that? He says, who do you think gave you that gift? I said, the Lord? He said, the Lord. Who do you think gave you that desire? I said, the Lord? He said, the Lord. I go, well, how do I do it? He goes, oh, that I don't know. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'm like, got this freedom for a moment. I'm driving out of there going, wow, I'm going to be a potter. And then I'm like, no, I'm not. This is reckless counsel. I'm going to go find another church. Ah. So I, I, but listen, you can't make this up. I get home and Pam is laying in the sun. She's finishing a book. Hey, how was your lunch, Pastor Bob? I said, oh, the guy snapped, told me to quit my job and go be a potter. She goes, that's the Lord. I go, Pam, what do you mean? She goes, I just got done finishing this book. It's titled No Compromise. It's by Melanie Green about the life of her husband, the contemporary Christian artist, Keith Green. I just got done going, Lord, would you give Michael and I a ministry like Melanie and Keith? She goes, so babe, you quit your job. I'll book a bunch of cruises and you start a pottery business. I go, you're serious. She goes, I'm serious. Three weeks later, I'm in my shed where I used to have my lawnmowers and I'm making pots. Pam's booking cruises. We go from steak and lobster, nine months later, weenie and beans. <laughs> and right before I took my old job back, we were asked to do the, a couple weeks before, didn't think nothing of it. We were asked to go to the ladies' retreat. And the theme scripture was Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship. So we went down. I was going to take my old job back on Monday, June 20th. We show up. Um, at this ladies' retreat at our home church. And Pam had written some songs about the potter and the clay. And uh, I brought some message. I don't know. Mold me, shape me, bend me, stretch me, fire me. You know those kind, yeah? Break me. And I go home. Pam calls me. That afternoon, she's still at the retreat. She goes, you sitting down? I said, I am. She goes, you'll never know how the Lord used us today. I said, oh, praise God. She goes, no, no, no. Listen up. This is it. This is what God called us to do before the foundations of the earth. It was never for you to be in galleries and to art shows. It was to use our gifts, talents, and treasures to bring a message of the potter and the clay. And I'm willing to go bankrupt 
Michael, I'm ready to go bankrupt. If this is the Lord, I believe it is. So I don't want you to take that job on Monday. Let's step out in faith. I'll go with you. I go, Pam, I don't believe that would look that way. She goes, I knew you were going to say that, but I'm going to be praying for you. I went to church the next day, talked to a handful of guys, some pastors, and then, of course, my pastor. And he goes, hey, Mike, just step out in faith and trust the Lord. Go talk to him, ask him what he'd want you to do, and then do what he tells you to do. So I stepped out in faith, and I said, Lord, I don't know if it looks like this. I don't even know. It doesn't make any sense. But, Lord, here's what does make sense. I want to be in the perfect will that you have for Pam's in my life. So, Lord, you show me, and I'll do it. And the Lord said, do it, and I'll show you. I didn't take the job on Monday. 90 days later, we're in a 900-square-foot apartment headed towards Mobile, Alabama on October 2nd. 1993, almost a year to the day that we stood at an altar and gave our lives to the Lord, to the whole world hears. So we go to Mobile. We're now living in host families, this little 900-square-foot apartment, and I'm telling you, I'm dying a 1,000 deaths because I'm like a Ritz-Carlton kind of guy. I'm not a race car bed with plastic on it in someone's basement kind of guy. I mean, it was, I was dying. I'm going, Lord, I didn't hear from you. It was bad pizza, and I woke up, and I listened to all these guys. Ah, you know, and they're like, God, God's God provides. I'm going, I know, but I know. I am a whip. I don't like this. You know, I mean, I'm like, Wee. January 93, three months after we're in the ministry, we've only done this maybe 10 times. We ended up on a short-term mission trip that we committed to. I ended up in Central America with Pam. Now, I want you to consider what I'm getting ready to do, and then we're going to start to wrap. The clay has never known what I've been doing tonight. Still doesn't know how I'm going to finish it. God is speaking to me. He goes, Mike, you don't know what I'm doing with your life. What you think I'm doing is not that. See, this is what Pam and I do, but there was a big why behind it. We didn't know what that is. We do now. But on that short-term mission trip, three months after we stepped in, out in faith, we uh, ended up in Central America. And at first I came down, it came back, and it was obvious, you know, because I saw things, heard things, and smelt things in the jungle down that I'd never heard, seen, or smelt before. So you may, I saw life and poverty beyond anything I'd ever witnessed. So I came back to this little 900-square-foot apartment I couldn't stand, and I just start repenting. Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I love this apartment. Don't teach me any more lessons. Air conditioning's good. Running water. Wow, Lord, I got the lesson. Praise you, Jesus. You know, I'm having one of those moments. And the uh, Lord's like, I didn't send you down to show you how blessed you are. Oh, I'm a blessed man. Well, of course you are. You live in the United States of America. Well, Lord, why would you have sent me down there? What are you going to do about all those children? Lord, I recognize there were a lot of children. Boy, you got a serious problem. <laughs> what would you have me do, Lord? I'm a missionary. Well, over and above your tithe, I'd have you to sponsor one of those little girls. Lord, I don't have 20 extra dollars a month, but I know three guys in church, they're loaded. They don't do nothing for you. Here are their names and what service they go to. <laughs> what do you have in your hand, Mikey? You have a remote control. What's it do? My cable. How much is cable? I said $38. You know, I'm having one of those. Don't freak out. We still have basic cable. <laughs> but I said, hey, Pam. She goes, yeah. I said, babe, I feel like the Lord would have us to sponsor one of those little girls. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I said, so we're not going to put it in the budget. The Lord showed me we could do change for change. There's change all over this house. It's about 67 cents a day. Just put all of our change in there. At the end of the month, we'll make up what's not in there. We've never, ever had to make that up because there was always that kind of change laying around. And I'd go to the Lord, and I'd say, Lord, $20 never changed anyone's life. He said, you know, they said that with five loaves and two fish because you keep looking with your eyes, natural eyes, and you don't see with mine what I could do and should do. 
is further and faster, and everybody's doing it together. So Pam and I started sponsor third world country children, and we got involved with an organization, the number one in the world, and became their number two artist over 13 years. 22,000 children on every continent of the globe. And about 11 years ago, Pastor Don McClure, Rob's my pastor, sat down and saw the ministry and asked me where those 22,000 children went to church. And I told him I didn't know if even they did. He said, so you're doing good, great humanitarian work. I said, phenomenal. He said, you know, the Lord called us to go into all the world and make disciples, not take care of kids. Yes, we have to do that. Yes, we need to educate. Yes, we need to close. Yes, but we do that at the local church level, Mike. How about if I help you and open up some doors for you to maybe do some kids' programs around the world with some of the missionaries that we've sent out? Would you be open? I said, absolutely. And that was in July and 05, and him and I made our first trip over to Central America, and then we started bringing pastors, and Pastor Rob was actually on the first trip, and then we started taking other pastors and building churches and orphanages and started doing kids' programs, and then we ended up in Uganda with Pastor Craig and Lauren, and I know the fellowship here knows it, and then to Kenya, and then we went to Cambodia, and, and we're in the DRC in, in, in the Congo and uh, in, in Costa Rica, and, and, and God just started opening up these doors. And a month or so ago, we started a, getting ready to start a program on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation at the Brownian Indian Reservation. Here in our own country, there's children everywhere. See, Pam and I didn't know what God was doing when we stood in an altar that day. We didn't really care. Whatever it is he was going to do, he was going to do it, and we wanted to be in the center of his will. Now, there were things that Pam's going to share in a minute, but we didn't know what was going to take place in our life. But today, we can look back and go, wow, Lord, you've always been in control. He has. Our first, first, my first trip to Africa moved me so deeply, I messed me up, actually. And I called Pam and uh, the year before she went her first time, and I was just broken. I was ready to get on a plane home. It was too much for me. I was on an island called Makusa, and I saw things and. I mean, it, it was 400 people living on 1.4 acres. It was just too much. And I called my wife in a state that she'd never heard or seen her husband in before. And I'm leading a team over there, and I'm, I'm a mess. And I'm like, oh, ma'am, you got to pray. you got to just ask God to lift this burden from me. i got to come home. I can't spend 13 more days here. And I'm like, oh. And she's like, honey, let me pray for you. Lord, fall on my husband right now. And Lord, would you have him soldier up, pull his bootstraps up, not shrink back, pull back. Man, she starts doing this like Navy SEAL Cajun thing. And man, I'm like, oh my God, she's right. Thank you. I'm like going, thank you, Jesus, for prayer. And the Lord, don't let him now. And I'm like, oh man, that was, see, I remember she was a little pretty girl singing. She was raised by a 30-year Marine, okay? She got every bit of her daddy. But afterwards, I said, Pam, you're coming to Africa with me. She goes, I'm coming. It, it messed me up. But I needed that person at that time to have that prayer for me, to get my eyes off myself and my circumstance, get my eyes on him. On the tarmac after her first trip, my second, she pulls down the tray. We're in Entebbe. She grabs a nappy, and she wrote songs in the night. Today in the Pottersville Kids program on five different continents, I have no idea how many works are going on. Over 15,000 children are being sponsored in Pottersville Kids. And we know all of their pastors today. They're being ministered to at a local church level. Picture's worth a thousand words. Pam's going to sing this song. I'm going to close this pot out, finish it the way I saw it, and we'll go home.
God will give you what you need, one child at a time. I'm gonna try to find a way to keep you safe and warm. Use me, I'll be your hands and feet. A shelter from the storm. I can hear you, your songs in the night. There is hope on the horizon. He can see you, hear your whispered prayer. I pray to God that kids like you. Feel free from harm tonight. When I look into your eyes, so innocent and sweet, I see the shadows of the pain. Dreams and defeats. I see the hunger, I see the tears as I wipe them from your face. I see the hurt, a glimpse of hope, longing for a warm program. I brought some prayer children on the back table as you exit here today, and you can take one home, and if you take the envelope on the back and fill it out on the left-hand side, put your first payment of $20 in. I'd love to give you one of my brand new CDs as our gift from us to you here this morning. Um, You can also take a mission trip with us, and if you uh, choose a child from a place that your church goes to, I know you go to Guatemala and Uganda with us, um, then you could actually meet your prayer child, which is a real blessing. This has been incredible for Michael and I. 
because our entire married life, he and I haven't been able to have our own biological children. But as you see, I'm a mother to thousands of children. Yes, you are. God is faithful. He is true, and he is just. The Bible says, O sing, barren woman, for many more are your descendants. And as you see, that's with some reality in our lives. So if you'd like to take one of our prayer children home, meet me at the back table, and I'd love to sign you up here this morning. Thank you. A pretty difficult thing when a couple is trying to have children, you know, and they can't. And the Lord laid it on Pam's and my heart early that we weren't going, we're not opposed to anything. We just weren't going to fight for that. It was going to either happen or not. But now we look back today and we see, wow, Lord, you knew. You knew. You knew. Change for change. Over and above your tithe. You feel led. Be great. So a young man comes up to me about 17 years ago at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo at the Calvary there, and we were doing an outreach, and he came up, and he wanted to sponsor afterwards, and he proceeded to tell me, I'm 21, I'm, uh, I'm going to graduate next year, I'm a junior, and uh, I'm going to do this, and this is a great blessing. I go, it really is, and I go, man, I'm really touched, because I know you're in college, you got no dough, you know, and uh, he's like, you know, the reason I want to do this is because I'm one of these kids. I go, what do you mean you want these kids? He goes, well, I grew up in Juarez, Mexico, and a family sponsored me my whole life, and that's how I got to go here to college here in the United States, so now I'm going to do what someone else did for me. I said, whoa, whoa, you're like with the picture on the icebox sponsor kid all grown up going to college, you're not a safe sponsor kid? He goes, well, I don't know where they put my picture, but yeah. I said, man, give me a hug. I never met a full-grown sponsor kid. And he goes, no, you're dirty. Now, I tell you that because I am having this revelation that I had never known as a potter. I got dirty. I got to tell you, as a potter, I love getting dirty. I love the smell of dirt. I got it up in my arms, my toes, my hair. I love dirt. And I'm going, Lord, why does everybody else see me as dirty? And yet I love that. And the Lord spoke to me, said, answer it as a potter. (gasps) The reason the potter doesn't know he's dirty, gang, is he can't. You see, the potter always sees this first. I see the work finished before I ever begin the work. This was designed at my kitchen table to be a wow pot. At the end of the service, Pam would unveil it, and the audience would go, wow. And some would go, wow, at the Pentecostal churches. But in the heart, everybody's going, let me say, this is 150 pounds of dirt apart from these hands. Now, I tell you, after every service, someone's going to come up and ask this question. Did you really make that? I really, really did. I really did. But more than that, I really saw it before I made it. Because you can't make a six-foot vase unless you design it first for a purpose. We have been designed in the image of God for a purpose. Now, I know someone in an audience's side is looking at that going, oh, that would look great in my house. going to look great in my father's house. The greatest gift that was ever offered to mankind was God's love through his son, Jesus Christ. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. We're all going to stand before the Lord, either as judge or savior. But he won't force his love on anybody. The Bible says we've all been created by God, but we're not all children of God unless we receive him. I want to ask everybody to stand. Please. Underneath the piano, broken, ran down to the church, asked my wife for forgiveness. Four nights later, I'm in church with my wife in the back of the church. And all of a sudden, I know that the Lord wants me to do what he did under that piano publicly because Bob's inviting people forward for that prayer to come forward. And I start wrestling with God like I used to before. I'm going, Lord, no, please, really? Come on, Lord, you know I'm born again. I love you. Thank you for what you did. And he keeps knocking on my heart. And in the invitation, he says, my sheep hear my voice. And I knew that God was speaking to me and was asking me. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. I knew all of that. So I'm going, Lord, what will all these people, I'm wrestling. And Lord, what will all these people think about me if I come forward? And this incredible thought came over me. Mikey, would you please consider right now how much no one is personally thinking about you? And I'm like, wow, no one is. I'm always on my mind, but no one else is thinking about me. But I leaned over to Pam. I said, Pam, I don't really want to go alone. I feel like the Lord has called me to go forward. She goes, I'll go with you. Now, here's what's important. This woman is going to be recognized by everybody in the room because she's on the worship team. She's on the radio. No one knows me from Adam's house cat. But she had no problem. And I understand today that because he that the son had set free was free. She grabbed her husband by the hand and we went forward. And as we started to move forward, there might have been people that morning going, oh, the Rosales, I hope everything's okay. I'm sure, okay? (laughs) But that's their stuff, not ours. I look back on that today and man, that was an amazing thing. So if you've never received Christ, I want to give you that opportunity to do that. We access heaven through prayer. Jesus calls his disciples openly and publicly. But if your testimony is similar to what Pam's was, you've known the Lord, walked with the Lord, but everything in your life is counterproductive and it's pulling you away from the Lord, I want to give you that opportunity to come back tonight. Say yes. He brought you here to hear this. To that person also, that as I was sharing about That burden of the past, that individual, that circumstance, that situation that just keeps you stuck. Let it go. Start today. Put some faith with your feet on that one. Let me pray for you. Just say, yep, that's me. I want to come out of that mud. I want the Lord to know I heard him. I want to get off that mat and I want to walk in freedom. I want to let it go. And also to that couple always who just need a touch from God. I want to pray for you too. We want to open up this altar as Pam finishes in this song. I'm going to be praying. If the Lord has spoken to you today in in whatever, because we don't know, but he knows. I want to give you that opportunity. Just come and stand right here. We'll pray and then we'll uh, start our Christmas. But this is the start of Christmas. Here's the gift. Come. As the Spirit of God will draw you, come. Say yes. I'll be praying. Come. Just come and stand. Come. Anybody. Anyone. Just 
come, Lord. set him Let me pray for those of you, and if your knees are hurting, it's okay, you can get up, but let me pray for you. And as I pray, the Lord's spoken to your heart, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the words, but in the quietness of your own heart, these are your words. I'm praying for you, and the person's calling is also, no, I'm just kidding. I'm praying, but I'm going to use the word I. As I'm using that word, that's you. You're just, you're saying that prayer in your heart, and this is for you. Lord, thank you that you died on a cross for me. Thank you, Lord, that you have cleansed me of all unrighteousness, the penalty I could never pay for that which I've done. You lovingly left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to die in my place and pay that penalty of my sins. And Lord, your word says that it's by grace through faith that we've been saved, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And Lord, it's Christmas. And we now unwrap that gift of a Savior. 
And Lord, I receive that gift of salvation from you. I receive you as my Savior. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your cleansing. I receive your restoration. That I'm now a new creature in Christ. The old is past and the new has come. And Lord, you're even going to take my past and use it together for good like you did with Mike and Pam and with all of us who have claimed the name of Christ. Lord, we're not righteous because of what we've done. We're righteous because of what you've done. Everyone in this room is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. And so, Lord, we humbly come into your presence thanking you for this great gift of salvation. And for those who have known you, but today they just want to be molded and shaped and yielded to the hand of God, the potter. Then, Lord, we receive that as well. Lord, change our lives for your glory. Bless these folks who have given their heart to you. Establish them in your word. And may they never forget this day until they are called home to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's clap for these folks who gave their heart to the Lord. Stand up. Can. Please feel free to be seated. All of you be seated. I'm only going to take three minutes of your time as I uh, set you on your way home. I want to share with you a Christmas gift that the Lord gave to me. I didn't even realize I got it, but I want to share it with you. And it's kind of cool. I, um, a friend of mine, 93 years young, passed away this year. She went to be with the Lord. And she was a childless widow. Her name was Dr. Alice Crilly. She died at 93 years of age. And long life runs in the family. Her great-grandmother lived to be 98 years old. She was born in the uh, 1840s, I think. Yeah. Actually, she was 16 years old uh, when the Gettysburg Address was recited. You guys know the Gettysburg Address? The Gettysburg Address happened on November 19th, 1863, uh, in a battlefield in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A few months earlier, in July of 1863, uh, the Southern forces had come up to the north for the first time in the Civil War and be the last time, and a, a battle occurred in Gettysburg. Thousands died. It was uh, July 1st to the 4th, I believe it was. And um, the rainy season had come. The fields were all soft. The dead had been buried, but the stench of dead was just permeating the cemetery in the battlefield in November of 1863 when an orator by the name of Edward Everest gave a long oration, a speech to dedicate the, the battlefield. And after he had finished, a man who was despised in the country, <clears throat> nobody wanted anything to do with him, his name was Abraham Lincoln, uh, even the North was tiring of him because hundreds of thousands of soldiers have, had died. The Civil War drug on. Lincoln was in the middle of an attempt for re-election. He knew he wouldn't be re-elected, lest it be about a year later that the election would occur. And here they were one year from the election. And the nation was in the worst state it, it had been in, since its conception. And Lincoln knew that, the, that his re-election would be near impossible, so much so that he had told Frederick Douglass to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and tell every black man and woman to get north because he knew that when McClellan would win, he'd seal the border and every black person that was south of the Mason-Dixon line would be a slave and everyone north would be free. He knew that McClellan would win and the nation was going to be divided. And he was burdened, sleepless nights. His face was gaunt. And nobody even wanted to hear from him that they didn't even make him the primary speaker. 
And on the train ride over to Gettysburg, he had penned these words that had been immortalized. It took him less than five minutes to read them. And these were the words. It said, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and dedicated can long endure. We're met on a great battlefield of that war, and we've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those here who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate and we cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the face of the earth." It was the most critical time in American history. And what's fascinating to me is you had Mike and Pam Rizell come up here. These are two folks that Michelle and I have known for over 20 years. We know all their, their background. We know all the tragedy that they've experienced. We've heard their testimony in different continents around the world. And God is an amazing God. It says in Isaiah 9 that for those who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. You see, God is a God of order and a God of love and a God of peace. And he steps into the chaos and the disorder and the sin and the brokenness of mankind to bring light and life. And what he did to Mike and Pam Rizal those many years ago to take a chaotic upbringing. And when you hear Mike's and Pam's background and all the heartache, he stepped in the midst of that death and that chaos. And he took trash and made it a treasure. The potter just takes clay that's been broken and marred. He grinds it, washes it in the water of his word, and formulates clay that he can make a vessel fit for his use. He did that in their lives. And you came into the room, and all Mike did and all Pam did was they just shared words, but those words were living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. It brought you to come alive to God, come alive to his word. And what God does for individuals, he does for a nation. And I say this to you because I know what this Christmas means to all of you because it's the same with me. We're all scared. We're wondering what's going to happen to this nation and this world. We're worried about our children and our grandchildren. Well, it was the same in 1863. All hell had broken loose. And what's fascinating to me is that in the midst of that chaos and that misery, there was a, a revival in 1857 with a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear who started to pray in the second floor of a Dutch Reformed church in New York. Within eight months, a million converts came to Christ in a nation of 30 million. It was fascinating. And they went into the bloodiest civil war the nation had ever known, and the nation that they knew was almost destroyed. And it was as Lincoln is in this battlefield dedicating it and the stench of the bodies surrounding him and everyone had given up hope. And this experiment, liberty would be over. 
that he penned those words that when we read today, our hearts soar and are touched by. And it transformed the country. You see, in November of 1863, less than a year remaining for the election, this woman right here was 16 years old. She was 16 years old. And you know what she was? She was an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. This was Alice Curley's great-grandmother. She lived until Alice was 23 years of age, and she passed away at 98. And Alice told me about having met her and the times they spent in the summers. I'm one person removed from an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. One person removed. She knew what it was like to be afraid. Everything she held dear was going to be destroyed. What happened after that is there was a battle, and the North had lost almost every battle. They were struggling. They had no leadership. But in May of 1864, as the election was drawing near, a general by the name of General Grant engaged in a battle called the Battle of the Wilderness where 20,000 Union troops died and another 10,000 Confederate troops died. But what happened was Grant continued to advance, and they'd never seen that before. And they devastated the Army of, of Virginia, and it was the beginning of the end for the Civil War. And when Sherman made it down to Atlanta and split it, all of a sudden, news got to Washington, and the tide changed. Lincoln was reelected. The North won, and the Union remained intact. And that entire generation went through the same fear you're going through. And in that battle of the wilderness where 20,000 men died, it was the thickets, and it was one of the most gruesome battles they'd ever experienced. That 16-year-old w- woman who had witnessed the Gettysburg Address was scared to death because her husband was fighting in the battle of the wilderness. This was his hat. And in this bag contains the medal of a survivor of the battle of the wilderness. And together they went on to establish a union that you and I get to enjoy. God's not finished with us. Fear isn't going to change anything. God today stepped into your world with his living word and touched your lives and brought order in the chaos of your home. That's a Christmas gift. He's going to do the same for our country in this world. Thank you, Lord. But fear is not going to win the day. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And today in this room, a Christmas gift has been given to all of us. The Son of God stepped into a dark world, and we have seen a great light. Today you saw lives touched. You're going to see a nation moved. You look at this new year with hope. Don't lose perspective. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. God's still in control, and we are still his people. We will not waver. Amen? Amen. Stand for the blessing of the Lord, if you would, and I'm going to show you a video, and then you get to go home. Lord, I thank you for Mike and Pam. Bless them, refresh them, and encourage them. Thank you for those who gave their heart to you this day, and for those who were touched. Maybe they couldn't get out of their seats to come forward, but Lord, you still moved and worked just like you did under the piano with Mike. It doesn't matter where we are, you're there. And so, God, we're grateful. Bless them and strengthen them. Lord, heal our families, heal our city, heal our state, heal our nation, heal the world. We walk in darkness, but we have seen a great light. And, Lord, we're grateful for this Christmas that unto us a child has been given and unto us a son is born, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And so, Lord, we're so grateful. We, we're just so thankful for that gift of Jesus. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts as Christmas approaches. 
that we would be diligent to invite our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, enemies, mm-hmm. everyone to come to the <laughs> Christmas Eve service, mm-hmm. that they too would have this great mm-hmm. gift of peace, the Prince of Peace. So we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.